your story doesn't have to end with the downward spiral of disobedience. The true and living God is simply one prayer of repentance away. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever made a decision in a desperate situation that you later came to regret? Maybe you know someone whose life has been ruined by one bad mistake. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, Ruth. You know, disobedience always runs its course. No one wakes up one morning desiring a ruinous life. It happens over the course of your life in small daily choices. And as you'll discover today, a series of small, seemingly insignificant, incremental decisions could change the course of your life forever, just like one family thousands of years ago. Are you aware of that reality in your life? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. During the period of the judges, Eglon, king of Moab, had oppressed the Israelites, as is recorded in Judges chapter 3. So the, the choice of Moab was a shocking choice for any orthodox Jewish mind. But this is where Elimelech went. In fact, the story is told in such a way as to leave us thinking that Elimelech and his family were likely the only Jews from Israel that went to Moab during this famine. But that's where he decided to go. Let me show you where it is. First of all, you know that Bethlehem is in the region of Judah, just to the east of the Dead Sea, just to the south of Jerusalem. Moab, the region of Moab, was to the to the west, I'm sorry, to the east of the Dead Sea. Bethlehem's to the west. Moab's to the east of the Dead Sea and toward the south side. It's on a major plateau. In fact, this is what it looks like looking at Moab. It is a huge plateau, but on the top of that plateau, there are, in fact, great farmlands. This is likely where Elimelech relocated his family. The expression the writer uses in verse 1 is literally the fields of Moab. Apparently, he moved his family to the fertile farmlands on the top of the 25-mile-long plateau on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now, what are we to think about this move? Was it sinful for him to leave Israel and settle in Moab during the time of famine? Let me say that it's not necessarily sinful for a believer in Old Testament Israel to decide to leave his homeland because of famine. It happens, for example, in Genesis 47, verse 4. Jacob and his family relocate to Egypt because of the severe famine in the land of Canaan. But there are clues in the context here that lead us to believe that Elimelech's decision was, in fact, a sinful one, as we will see. As Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish commentator, writes, we have only to mark the progress of the story to read the judgment of God. 
we're just told in verse 1, a certain man with his wife and two sons. In verse 2, we're introduced to this man and his family. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. The husband, Elimelech. Elimelech means in Hebrew, God is king, or my God is king. This tells us likely that Elimelech's parents, even in that dark period, were devout worshipers of Yahweh, Israel's God. And if that was true, as it probably was, then undoubtedly, as all godly parents do, they longed for their son to be devoted to Yahweh, and so they named him with a name that attached him to the God of Israel. God is king, or my God is king. His wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant or delightful. And the couple had two sons whose names rhyme in Hebrew. If you kind of rhymed your children's names, either at the, at the beginning or the end, then you're following in a long tradition because this is what Naomi and Elimelech did. The name of the older son was Malon, which probably means sick. The name of the younger son was Kilian, which means frail or pining. Now, it's hard to know whether those are descriptions of the health of the boys or of their mom or dad when they were born. But regardless, you have two boys, one sick and the other's frail. <laughs> Verse 2 adds that they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem, obviously the city where they were from. And he says in Judah to make sure that it's clear that he's not talking about the Bethlehem in Zebulun, a different tribe, a different Bethlehem. But he's not just saying this. He's already told us that Elimelech was from Bethlehem in Judah in verse 1. So he's adding here in verse 2 more than a GPS location. Early in its history, those who lived in Bethlehem were referred to as Ephrathites. So this expression, they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, means that this family was one of the old established families in that community. This family hadn't recently moved to that area, but they had been part of the original, their families had been part of the original Jewish settlers. They were Bethlehem blue bloods, part of the wealthy aristocracy We can see this, by the way, as we go through the book in different ways. We can see it from the interest of the entire city when Naomi returns, as we'll see later in this first chapter. You can see it from the prominence of their relative, their close relative, Boaz. And you can see it from the fact that in chapter 4, verse 3, Elimelech had owned a large piece of property there in the area. So this was a prominent Bethlehem family. They were part of the aristocracy, and they were a family, Elimelech was part of a family with a rich spiritual heritage of devotion to God. But Elimelech doesn't live up to his name. He decides he's had enough of life in Israel. He wants the prosperity that he can't enjoy in an agricultural society where there's drought. And so he picks up his family, and he leaves the town, he leaves Israel, and he moves of all places 
to Moab. They planned to live there as resident aliens until the conditions in Bethlehem improved. Verse 2 goes on to say, Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. I like the way Daniel Block in his excellent commentary describes it. He says, instead of recognizing the famine to be punishment for the nation's sin and repenting of their spiritual infidelity, they left their people and their land for the unclean land of Moab. Elimelech designed his own solution. That's exactly what's going on. And he's taking his family with him. The decision that Elimelech and this family made in many ways parallels that of the prodigal son in the parable of Luke 15. They are in a very real sense at this point a prodigal family. They're only moving 50 miles away, but they are certainly moving to the far country. So in the middle of the desperate circumstances of the nation, one family made an absolutely disastrous choice. And as a result, they came to experience the divine consequences of rebellion. The divine consequences of rebellion. Verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. The plan that had seemed like such a good one when they left Bethlehem unfolds now in unthinkable tragedy. Elimelech died and left Naomi a widow in a far land. The Hebrew word left here is a word that means to be left over or to remain. And interestingly, this word often refers to bereavement over the death of someone, and it is used of those who have survived the judgment of God. Moreover, for an Israelite to be buried in an unclean land was the worst of punishments. Amos put it this way in Amos 7.17, When God wants to to speak judgment unto his people, therefore thus says Yahweh, your wife will become a harlot in the city, your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. This is an act of God's judgment. So Naomi was left grieving her husband, But at least she still had her two unmarried sons. Now, based on the age at which most Jewish boys married in those days, usually by their early 20s, these boys were likely only in their late teens or early 20s when their father died. That means that Elimelech died young, probably around 40 years of age. Now, at this point, Naomi has her own choice to make. We're not told in the story whether she merely went along with her husband's plan to move to Moab or if she was in full agreement with it or, frankly, we don't know but what she was the driving force behind it. We aren't told. Regardless, after his death, she is free to take her two sons and return to Bethlehem. But Naomi decides on her own to stay. She, too along with Elimelech, is now clearly in the path of disobedience. And a parent's disobedience to God can have devastating effects on the spiritual health of the family. Notice verse 4. 
her two sons took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. Now here we're not told who married whom, but according to chapter 4, verse 10, the oldest son, Malon, married Ruth and Kilion married Orpah. By the way, let me just say here, there's so many ways we see the trustworthiness of Scripture. And here's one of them. The writer's careful selection of the names as he records them shows his concern for historical accuracy. Because the four names of the Hebrew family are all common Hebrew names, and the name of the wives are not. Now what's interesting in verse 4 is the way the writer of Ruth announces the marriage of these boys. Because in announcing their marriages, the Hebrew text uses a very unusual expression. It was an expression used primarily in the Old Testament of illegitimate marriages, especially marriages with non-Israelites. Now, there are commentators and there are people who believe that it really wasn't a problem for these boys to marry Moabites. They say... You know, the Old Testament law did not expressly forbid an Israelite man from marrying a woman just because she was a Moabite. They point out in Deuteronomy 7, the prohibition was clearly only for Canaanites. However, as I will show you in a moment, clearly the spirit of that law absolutely forbade these boys from marrying these women. Not because they were Moabite but because they were idolaters. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and he lists those nations... When he delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show no favor to them. Furthermore, verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Now, here's where commentators, some of them say, well, see, it's just the Canaanites that are included in this. But notice the reason, verse 4. For, because, here's why I don't want you to do this. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. God's concern in this prohibition was that the children of Israel, sons or daughters, would marry idolaters and therefore people in Israel would become idolaters. This was exactly true in the case of the girls these boys married. Go back to Ruth and look at chapter 1. In verse 15, Naomi said to Ruth, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Clearly, Orpah was an idolater. You know what that means? In Moab, it meant that she worshipped the false god Chemosh, to whom children were offered alive. They were burned alive in sacrifice to the god Chemosh. 
Ruth will be, will be converted, as we'll see, in a glorious act of divine grace. But before her conversion, she too was an idolater. So when Naomi decided to stay in Moab after the death of Elimelech, she knew if she stayed there, her boys would marry local girls. At this point, as the head of the household, she should have forbidden these marriages. Think about what her failure to do so actually means. Along with her daughter-in-laws, her sons, and almost certainly her grandchildren, if they survived being offered to Chemosh, would grow up worshiping the Moabite idol. What Ruth should have done after her husband's death was returned with her sons to Bethlehem, but she stayed. And as a result of her disobedience, the disobedience of her sons continued and deepened in marrying idolatrous women. But in reality, even their marriages were simply another act of divine judgment. God had said this in Deuteronomy 28, 32. If you don't keep my laws, your sons and your daughters will be given to another people. Verse 4 says at the end of the verse, and they lived there about 10 years. This is probably how long the family was in Moab altogether. Likely Elimelech died shortly after they arrived, early in that 10-year period. Not long after that, the boys married. Then for the balance of those 10 years, Naomi, her two boys, and their idolatrous wives lived there in Moab. Can you see the downward spiral of disobedience? Verse 1 says, they went to sojourn. Just a a short stay until things got better. Verse 2 says, they remained there. Verse 4, they married idolatrous wives. And verse 4 goes on to say, they lived there about 10 years. Oh, and by the way, with no indication of ever moving back. This is how disobedience always runs its course. Be aware of this in your own life. No one wakes up one morning and says, I want my children to marry idol worshipers. Instead, there are a series of small incremental decisions that move you or move you and your family toward the path of disobedience to God. Farther and farther from God. A series of small, seemingly insignificant, incremental decisions. Verse 5 says, Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So, sick and pining died. At this point, they couldn't have been older than their late 20s or their early 30s. This is, this is incredible tragedy to this family. It's been devastated. I mean, think of the physical and spiritual tragedies that happened within 10 years that struck this family within that 10-year period. They faced a famine in their own country, a sinful decision to move away from their homeland to a pagan land, the unexpected death of Naomi's young husband, her boys married women who worship the false god Chemosh. Both sons are married for 10 years without children. 
And then her two sons, still in the prime of life, die suddenly and unexpectedly. Verse 5 says, Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Naomi is now completely alone. Completely alone in a foreign land, in the far country. Here is a young widow in a foreign country with no family except two dependents, her pagan daughter-in-laws, and no means of income. How did Naomi interpret this tragic series of events? We'll get here, but I want you to see a glimpse of it first. Look down in verse 20 of chapter 1. This is after she returns. She says, do not call me Naomi or Pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but notice this, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since Yahweh has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? This was her own perspective of this series of tragic events. On a human level, all hope is gone for Naomi. Apparently, from the best we can tell from the story, her parents by this time were dead. Remarriage is unlikely in light of the fact that she was beyond childbearing years, as she herself mentions. She had no trade, and frankly, even if she did have a trade, women in that Age didn't work and earn a living in that way. She had no children to support her. Robert Hubbard writes, Driven from her homeland by famine, cruelly robbed of loved ones by death, a lonely widow sits abandoned in a foreign land. There doesn't appear to be any hope, humanly speaking, on the horizon. But there's hope because she turns back to her God. Thank God the story doesn't end here. It will become a story of faith and salvation, a story of repentance and forgiveness, a story of return and restoration. Can I just say to you tonight, I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know if you have taken a path of disobedience that's led you incrementally farther and farther away from God. But let me just tell you, That your story doesn't have to end with the downward spiral of disobedience. The true and living God is simply one prayer of repentance away. Daniel Block writes, Despite the relative secularity of the book as a whole, it must be interpreted as a glorious account of divine providence. The seeds of a great dynasty that would arise in the future are being sown in this private family of Bethlehem. This family consists of the most unlikely candidates for divine service, a widow left without husband or sons, an alien in a similar state, and a bachelor from the humble town of Bethlehem. You see, ultimately, Ruth is a story of God and his providence using even human sin to accomplish his best and grandest plan, the plan of redemption. Because out of this story of disobedience and disaster, 
becomes ultimately the Savior of the world. Understand that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has the blood of Ruth, a former Moabite worshiper of Chemosh, flowing through his veins. Our God is a Redeemer. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of Ruth. Tom will have part three for us next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. You know, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.